And your leader is someone who's challenging themselves to love God heart, soul, mind, and strength and not just fall into the ways of growth that come easily to me. We did a series when I first came looking at this. And so if you're new to our church, I'd really encourage you to look at the backlog of sermons and find our sermon series on kind of like the the four uh, spiritual love languages, four loves, heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's really just a way of taking Jesus' greatest commandment and making it very practical and putting just some rails to it. Love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. How do you do that? Well, one way you could think about it is to say, how are you growing in your ability to love God with your heart by cultivating godly relationships? How are you growing in your ability to um, love God through deepening times of prayer and worship and introspection and journaling, soul? How are we learning to love God with all of our minds by learning more about the Bible and about Christian worldview? And how are we learning to love God with all of our strength? By practically using the energy and the resources God has given us to serve and give. So every month I just look at those four areas and say, God, how are you particularly challenging me to uh, grow and to stretch myself? Or or what should I be prioritizing in those areas? So Hart, uh, my wife and I are going to be going on a pastors and spouse retreat this month. We're pretty excited about that. And it's also a great chance to connect with other uh, evangelical covenant church pastors and their spouses coming from all over the country. So that's always a really refreshing time. I'm told we didn't get to go last year because there was too much happening uh, when we were first getting settled in early October. But uh, Pastor Jason and Jesse at Junction and Balfour, they speak the world of it. So we're pretty pumped to go to that. I have a number of, I'm taking a course in November through our denomination. And there's a there's seven personality or temperament inventories I need to take as part of that, like Enneagram, Myers-Briggs. There's, there's a whole bunch of them that kind of get a sense of my functionality and dysfunctionality. So I'm going to be doing those over the next two weeks in preparation for that. And that's a really good chance for me to be prayerfully considering the feedback that I get from those in terms of what are areas where I need to grow in terms of my own emotional, psychological, spiritual maturity. So I'll be devoting a lot of time to, to not only doing those, but then prayerfully reflecting how to move forward. I've got some seminars coming up related to loving your LGBTQ neighbors and uh, kind of doing stuff around world religions. So I've kind of just started a bit last month, but I'm continuing to do, to do a lot of research in both of those areas, uh, transgenderism, uh, Islam, Buddhism, New Age. So that's really how I'm challenging myself to grow this month. And strength, uh, last week I challenged all of you to do a, one deliberate act of mercy or compassion last week. And that was re- actually really challenging for me to go through my re- week and to realize and to be consciously aware of how much I'm not normally consciously aware of doing that through my everyday life. And so I'm really challenging myself to continue that for this month. What's one way that I can deliberately do an act of mercy or compassion at least once a week? Prayerfully, God puts someone or a situation in front of me through which I can respond with grace and mercy. So that's what I'm going to be focusing on this month. Uh, It would be remiss of me if I didn't acknowledge and say I'm very excited this Sunday because my mom is all the way here from Kingston, Ontario. So you can welcome her, yeah, I came for lunch. It's been great to have her. Uh, she'll be leaving um, tomorrow morning, but it's been a really, really wonderful, enriching time to have her here, and we haven't seen each other face-to-face in a long time, and it's just been super fun, but the time is also flying by. The kids are going to be doing a fire drill, so if you hear them running down, everything's fine. They're not evacuating. <laughs> They, they, they don't know something that you don't know. You're like, what, what, what? They're just going to be heading down this exit and just practicing so that uh, in the event that there was a fire emergency, they would be safe. 
Okay, I'm going to be reading and teaching through the passage. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 23. It's a long section of scripture, but really, really, really powerful. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw that some of his disciples eating food were, were eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? I just want to stop there for a moment because there's a real cultural gap here where it might seem very strange for us that the Pharisees would be calling out Jesus, Jesus because his disciples aren't washing their hands before they eat. For us, that's a hygienic thing. And so we would say, well, that might be gross or unhygienic, but why would the religious leaders coming from Jerusalem press into Jesus on that issue? Some of the other things you can imagine, if Jesus says, I choose to forgive you of your sins, that makes sense. Only God can forgive sins. What are you saying, Jesus? But what's the big deal about his disciples not washing their hands? Well, in the Old Testament, there's a whole bunch of laws called the cleanliness laws, which are there to really teach Israel spiritual humility. And there are a collection of laws that are used to prepare people for worship. So if you had an infectious disease or you had a bodily discharge of any kind, then you were considered ritually impure if you touched a dead person or a dead animal, for example. And when you were impure, when you were unclean, you weren't allowed to move into and participate in the temple worship. You were understood to be defiled. You were stained you were unclean, and no one in that condition is able to draw near to God. Otherwise, you're going to be obliterated because God's glory is so good, it's so pure in its holiness, it will destroy that which approaches it that isn't the same measure of holiness. It's kind of like the sun. From a distance, you're safe. The closer you get, the purity of the sun's power will actually disintegrate you. So in temple worship, the center of the temple, the Shekinah glory, in concentric circles, moves into concentric circles of safety. If you are unclean, the closer you move towards the center, the more dangerous it is for you. So if you are unclean, you have to ceremonially and ritualistically wash yourselves according to these laws so that you can, without fear, move into the presence of God. And this was a way for God to teach people spiritual humility. We might say that's very strange, but it's not actually strange at all because we do it all the time in our lives. If you're going on a date, you do not show up unclean. You spend a lot of time getting rid of your uncleanness. You brush your teeth, you comb your hair, you put on the right outfit, you're preparing yourself for what? To move into the presence of a glorious person. If you have a job interview, you spend a lot of time getting rid of uncleanness. You spend a lot of time preparing to move into the presence of a glorious person who has power, power potentially of life and death over (laughs) whether you you make money, you get a job. So really all God was saying to Israel through this is we do this all the time as human beings when we're about to enter the presence of a glorious person. How much more should you do it to enter into the presence of the most glorious being? 
the being from whom all these other glorious people, in a sense, are taking some of their glory from. These people are weighty, but God, God's glory eclipses them all. So, cleaning yourself ritualistically is very important within a Old Testament um, covenantal worldview. But the other factor is that in between the Testaments, what's called the intertestamental period, the Old Testament ends, your angle, Old Testament ends, then there's like 400 years of kind of, uh, prophetically speaking, dead space, then John the Baptist comes. In that intertestamental period, remember there's four groups that arise that are saying, this is how the kingdom of God is going to come. We're desperate for the kingdom of God to come. We want the kingdom of God to be established here and now. And that means God's going to come and rule and reign and he's going to deal with our enemies and he's going to establish Israel as the nation of nations and everything's going to be the way God wants it. God's going to restore the fortunes of Israel. That's what they thought of the kingdom of God. You had the Essenes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Zealots. You don't really read about the Essenes in the New Testament, but their influence is indirectly alluded to. You read about the other groups. This is the Pharisee group. And what the Pharisee group did is they said, the reason why Israel was exiled, the reason why now first, um, you know, the Persians and the Babylonians and the Greeks and then the Romans now are occupying our land, the reason why all this stuff has happened has been because of our disobedience. So the way that the kingdom of God is going to come, the way that God is going to establish himself is if every man, woman, and child in Israel gets super serious about obedience to God's law. Like, really serious. No more playing games. Our disobedience got us into trouble. It's going to be our obedience that gets us out of it. Well intended. You can kind of see the logic there. But this is what happens. In a span of about 400 years, they don't just say, let's get really serious about God's law. There becomes a secondary law called the oral tradition. It gets collected. It becomes a massive tome of uh, teachings of the rabbis. Uh, We would know it today as the Mishnah that were rules upon rules, that were clarifying rules and exactly what this rule meant in this context. And it came out of a heart originally to say, let's be really careful we never break God's laws so that we'll show God that we're serious and he'll come to our rescue. And one of the things that it did is where priests were supposed to do certain ceremonial washings as it related to eating and taking uh, the sacrificial bread and different things in the Old Testament, the Pharisees thought, well, wouldn't it be even more impressive to God if that was something that we legislated for everybody, even if you weren't a priest, every man, woman, and child, whenever you ate, ceremonially wash their hands. So we'll show God how devout and how humble we are. Starts with good intentions. You fast forward, and like Mark said, by Jesus' day, this has become common practice. And he says, you know, all the Jews do this. No one eats without doing a ceremonial washing. And it comes out of this idea that we want to honor God, but it had become a very uh, mechanical, ritualistic, legalistic practice. And there's even some writings in the Mishnah, and certainly this is the case in Jesus' time, where this tradition of the elders, this oral tradition that got layered on top of Scripture, actually became equal in authority to the Scripture itself. So when we think of God's laws, we tend to think of a few key books in the Old Testament, you know, Leviticus, let's say, in terms of some of the cleanliness laws. But they had a whole, they had a, you know, 20 times that. So when Jesus and his disciples eat without washing for the Pharisees, that's very offensive. 
Because it feels like, again, they're kind of playing very casual with something that every God-fearing Jew knows you're supposed to do. You should ceremonially wash. Again, we think, well, what's the big deal with clean hands? But for them, it's actually attached to, if we don't do this, God's kingdom's not going to come. If we have one person in Israel screwing this up and not living wholly righteously before God, how can we expect God to rescue us? So when they say, how, you know, how can you just kind of act as if the tradition of the elders aren't there? This is common practice. Everyone does this, Jesus. Who are you to allow your disciples, who obviously got the idea from you, or you're at least implicitly acknowledging or allowing it, you're not rebuking them for this. Like, why? what puts you guys in a position where you don't have to follow all the rules that we do? So this is actually a huge deal because it gets at the heart of whether Jesus can actually be trusted as an authoritative teacher as it relates to God's law. This is Jesus' reply. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it's written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, and their teachings are but rules taught by men. That's the drop the mic moment, right? There's no seeking first to understand with Jesus. He understands where they're coming from. He says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. This is, this is mechanical religion. You're religiously fervent, but you're spiritually dead. I'm calling you out on the fact that none of what you're doing is actually grounded in trying to honor God. You've just gotten lost in a system of all these arbitrary rules, and now you don't even, you don't even see where they came from anymore. And you're elevating these traditions of men over and above the actual words of God. Don't miss the subtext of what Jesus is saying. It's as if Jesus is saying, hey, Pharisees, I totally get it. I bet you've washed your hands many, many, many times, even today before we got to this point. But although you have washed your hands many, many, many times today, certainly more so than my disciples over here, you're actually the most unclean people here. And think about how dangerous that would be to say Jesus continues to press in on them. You've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. Funny little word picture. Moses coming down, Ten Commandments, you can hold them. You can hold the commands of God. He hasn't given Israel too many, only 613. And some of those are not even for the, the average Israelite. A lot of those are for the priests. You can hold the commands of God, but you've created so many man-made laws, you've got to set aside the commands of God to pick up this huge weight of these tomes of uh, earthly man-made wisdom. You've set aside the commands of God. You're holding on to the traditions of men. He says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But I say, uh, but, sorry, but you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise receive from me is Corbin, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father and mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition, so that the tradition that you've handed down, and you do many things like this. There had been a tradition, according to the elders, started well, you can devote certain things to God. You can say, this is Corbin, I devote it wholly unto God great intentions. You fast forward, that becomes a loophole through which you cannot practically help people by leveraging religious, pious-sounding language. I have a lot of money. 
my mother and father, who I'm required to honor, and certainly in this context means support in their old age, they need some of my financial help. Mom and dad, I'd love to be able to help you. I totally would. The problem is, all this money that I have socked away, I declared it Corbin. I dedicated it to God. I still get to keep it. Like, it's still under my ownership. When I die, it goes to the temple. I'd love to be able to help you, but my hands are tied. So it was a way for people to duck out of the actual command to honor your father and mother, but you get to do it by sounding religious and pious in the process. You get to do it by sounding spiritual. It's kind of like the people today who would say, oh, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't feel any responsibility towards a, a local church to love, to serve, to give, because my whole life is, 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 is for God. And, and, I, and I give in lots of ways, and, and I've just devoted myself to God, so I don't need to be in a relationship with other Christians. I, I, I'm just going to kind of sequester myself away and not... Uh, follow through on some of these commands in the New Testament, bear one another's burdens, give hilariously, um, mourn with those who mourn, because um, I just see my life differently. I see my whole life is devoted to God. So it sounds very spiritual. It sounds very uh, Jesus-like. It's, it's high-level kingdom language. But some people sometimes use that as a way to actually get out from under the responsibility to actually get your hands dirty in loving people in ways that are sometimes inconvenient and challenging and require sacrifice. And then so, and look at what Jesus says. He says, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down, and you do many things like this. Jesus says, this, is, has, this has become, this is, this is systemic. This is endemic to how you operate. You, you completely lose the major issue. Verse 14, again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone. I want you to understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had, after he had left the crowd and entered the house, the disciples asked him about the parable, and he said, Are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, it just goes into his stomach and then out of his body. And then Mark adds the note, In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, from a man's heart, come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and greed and malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All of these evils come from inside and make him unclean. It's like Jesus is saying, let's just uh, pull back here, Pharisees. Do you... Do you honestly think you can get clean by washing the outside of your body? And I don't mean obviously superficially clean. I mean spiritually clean, such that you can enter the presence of God. You actually think that's the solution. That's what you're nitpicking on. That's what you think would ever cause God to say, oh, they're really serious about their relationship with me. Now I'll go and rescue them as a reward. They've merited this out of their favor of all the ceremonial cleansing. That would only make it would only make sense if ceremonial wash that ceremonial washing would be the solution, if the source of uncleanness was on the outside, then it would make sense. But the source of uncleanness is on the inside, and so washing the outside can only make you superficially clean. 
even if you want to use the language of sanctifying you, setting you apart and cleaning, it can only sanctify the outside of the body. But the problem is there's deeper issues on the inside. There's deeper and more severe issues of uncleanness within, which all the ceremonial washing in the world is not actually, actually going to touch. Now, I understand, even up to this point, kind of learning Mark 7, some context, Pharisees, ceremonial washing, this, I would understand there would be people here who would still be thinking, okay, I understand the context, maybe this Bible passage, but I'm not, I'm not actually sure how this relates to me. I'm not sure how this is relevant. It still feels like a conversation that's 2,000 years removed from my context and my culture, and it's probably one of those stories in the Bible that I would maybe read over and be like, just keep reading. I don't, I don't really know what to do with it. Well, here, here's how this gets very personal for each of us. Jesus is saying here what the whole Bible says, which is that in our natural state, we are all unclean before God. We're all unclean. We're all stained. We're all defiled. According to the Bible, we're all like pig pen. Okay? Uh, Charles Schultz was a Christian, and so there's certainly many times, especially when he did cartoons around the Christmas season or Easter, his very subtle, for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, uh, very subtle allusions to the gospel in there. Uh, one of them may be Pigpen, because the, the, the joke, it's, it's kind of a one-act, or one-trick pony of Pigpen, but no matter what he does, he's always dirty. No matter where he goes, he's always dirty. There's comic strips and TV shows where Pigpen goes into the shower, comes out of the shower, and he's still dirty all the time. doesn't matter where Pigpen goes, he's, he's always dirty. And, and this is a great word picture. It's a great picture of what the scripture says is true of our spiritual condition. We could clean ourselves as much. We could jump through all kinds of clen- cleansing rituals and um, cleaning. We could, we could use the, the heaviest soap, but... We, take, we move one step forward, we're still unclean. We haven't dealt with, there's a, there's a deeper uncleanliness to us that, that, that isn't skin deep. It's emanating out of who we are. It's part of our identity. Pigpen's identity is that he's always dirty, he's unclean. That's kind of his thing. Now some people hear things like this and they think, oh, see, this is why I don't, I don't like going to church, I don't like reading the Bible, because it's all negative, it's all like, oh, sinful, unclean, dirty. That, I think it... I just find that incredibly negative. I'm trying to be a more pest or optimistic person. I don't, want to be, I don't want to be held down by these regressive ideas that were totally sinful. Well, that's not what the word unclean means. The word unclean means that we're just not clean. It doesn't mean that we're as bad as we possibly could be. It just acknowledges the fact that unless you're a tremendously unreflective person, you, you, you just can't exist in this world and not recognize and see that there is a lot of good that you know you should be doing that you don't do. There's a lot of evil that you would absolutely condemn on paper that comes very naturally to you. And when you look at the entire human condition, there is something very, very wrong in human nature. We seem to be incredibly adept at evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, envy, slander. Those aren't things you have to go to school for to learn. Those aren't habits that you have to be trained in in order to excel at. We excel at those things naturally. Now, yes, we might say, I've never been tempted to theft, but you're tempted to gossip. I've never been tempted to murder, but you're 
tempted to uh, character assassination in different ways. We're all unclean, and these things come very, very naturally to us. And because of that, I believe that every human being carries some measure of guilt and shame, a sense of uncleanness, a sense of stain, a sense of defilement, of unworthiness. And it's not just what we do. It's not just because we've done certain things, or sometimes it's because of what other people have done to us. But it's also what we leave undone. A lot of people are frustrated, and they don't understand. They're frustrated by the gap between, this is the kind of person I want to be, and I know I should be, but I, this is the person that I end up being. I don't know why I can't just make a decision and be a better person. It doesn't come naturally to me, though. I feel pulled back and held down, and the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. The things that I would totally condemn are things that I find myself saying. Many people are haunted by the gap between what they aspire to, what they aspire to, and how they actually play out their life. And Jesus is just not afraid to tell us the truth about our condition. And he's not afraid to tell us the truth about its source. It's sin, it's the power of sin at work in our hearts and flowing out of our hearts. The fundamental, the capital P problem that fuels all of our other problems isn't out there. It isn't other people. It isn't um, malformed uh, political structures. It's not, a, not simply a lack of education. Those things maybe are contributing factors. The problem that drives our problem is our own hearts. So how does Scripture tell us to deal with this problem, to deal with this uncleanness, to deal with the stain? Well, I'm going to tell you two things it tells you very clearly won't work. There's two strategies that almost every human being attempts throughout their life that do not work. It will not deal with your uncleanness. The first is irreligion, which is a complete rejection of anything religious or any kind of... Um, anything that smacks of needing to adopt any kind of a moral or ethical or religious, religious code. This is where you try and self-justify yourself by denying or minimizing your sinfulness. I reject the idea that humans are sinful. I have a very optimistic view of human nature. The pig pen illustration, Jeff, I get it. I think it's hyperbole. We're all a little bit dirty, but we can clean ourselves up. It's not that big a deal. I think it's, I think it's manipulative and hyperbolic to say we're always dirty, we're unclean, or that we can't do anything about it. Sure, there are a few blemishes on human character, but I believe a lot of things can be dealt with from the outside. I'm essentially good, and I don't want or need any of this negative talk about being sinful. The problem with that is the Bible makes a claim about sin that uh, is quite damaging to the idea that we can just live in denial. And that is in Numbers 32:23. It's attested to throughout Scripture, but this is one of my favorite Scriptures on it. It just simply says, your sin will find you out. Sin isn't something that is subjective in the sense that, oh, if I just stop believing in it, it goes away. You, when you participate in anti-God patterns of speech, conduct, um, politics, relationships within your marriage, when you live in anti-God ways, it doesn't matter whether you deny the existence of sin or reject that language or want to choose to believe in fundamental human goodness. Living in that state of denial will not save you from the consequences of ignoring or minimizing your sinfulness any more that, than living in denial that you have cancer will somehow save you from the consequences of it on your body. I don't believe in cancer. I just choose to believe that is uh, an exaggeration 
of other things and I can deal with it. I mean, you, you could say those things, you could believe that sincerely, but you will still sincerely be misled and you will still sincerely die under the oppressive action of that cancer. So irreligion, trying to justify yourself by simply denying or minimizing your sinfulness or minimizing your sense of uncleanness isn't going to work. But the other surprising thing that Jesus points out here is that the other path that won't work to dealing with your uncleanness is religion. Religion won't work. Religion and religiosity, where you're trying to self-justify yourself through self-righteous acts. I'll just do these things. I'll do them really well. I'll show sincerity. I'll uh, pull myself up by my own uh, bootstraps. It's kind of like blue-collar religion. I'll straighten myself out. That's not actually going to work either. Following rules and rituals, no matter how well-intended they are, in order to justify yourself before God and others, that only deals with the outside of the cup. And many people mistake this for Christianity. They think that's what Christianity is. But it's absolutely not. That's just moralism or religiosity. Or we try and be a better person, which isn't a bad thing. It's just that Jesus wants us to understand that the farthest that will ever get you is just washing the outside of the cup. You will look presentable and be more respectable to other people, and that will have certain advantages in your life. You don't want to minimize making good decisions over bad ones, but it's not going to get at the heart of the issue. It's not going to deal with a fundamental uncleanness, uncleanness because our hearts are the problem. And so it doesn't matter if your default naturally is irreligion, I'm just going to minimize my own unclean, it's not a big deal. Or religion, I'm going to make a big deal of it, but I'm really going to clean myself up, so to speak. It doesn't matter what, which path you prefer, both are going to, both are, are unable to save you or get the stain out, because neither get at the heart. There's only one cleansing agent strong enough to cleanse us fully and completely, such that you could enter the presence of God with boldness and confidence and assurance of acceptance, such that you could live in a way where you were out from under the anxiety of sin and guilt and shame. And that is the blood of Jesus. There's a song we're going to sing in a few, a few minutes. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make it whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. How precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. There's no other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now where does that conviction come from? Nothing but the blood of Jesus can get the stain out. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can deal with our fundamental uncleanness. How can that be? In Zechariah chapter 3, Zechariah is a prophet. He's established after God's people come back from exile, kind of the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah. He has a vision. He's given a vision in, in Zechariah 3 where it says, The Lord showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Joshua was the first high priest that was installed post-exile period. And there was only one day of the year where the high priest was in the very presence of God, who, where the high priest stood before the spiritual throne of God, and that was on the Day of Atonement, where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and only the high priest would go. So Zechariah is having a vision of Israel's high priest in the center of the temple in the Shekinah glory of God. But but what Zechariah sees completely 
shocks and astounds him. In verse 3, it says, Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes. The word filthy in Hebrew is used just as much to describe excrement as just general dirtiness. So this is a soiled priest in the presence of God. And he stood before the angel of the Lord, the Shekinah glory. And the high priest is supposed to, be, supposed to be ceremonially completely clean. He has to undergo many washings before he can enter the Holy of Holies. And, he, and, a, and a robe of the purest white linen is to go on him to symbolize his humbleness before God, his purity before God in representing the people on this day of atonement and asking God to place upon the scapegoat and the lamb that's going to be sacrificed to cover over the sins of the people. The holy priest has to prepare himself to be pure and clean inside and out. But here's Joshua. He's standing in the presence of the Lord, covered in excrement. And so Zechariah, like anybody, is anticipating that God is going to destroy him. A high priest shouldn't even be allowed in the vicinity of the temple courts, yet alone into the Holy of Holies, if he is not clean. But that's not what happens. God doesn't kill him. In verse 4, it says, The angel said, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. How is God going to do that? How does Joshua get out from under the judgment of God? Why is God choosing to have mercy? How is God choosing to have mercy? How can God just overlook that? Well, it tells us in verse 8, when God says to Joshua, Listen, high priest Joshua, and to you and your associates seated before you, you and all the other priests who stand as a bridge between me and my people. You are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. And centuries later, God keeps his promise by sending another Joshua. Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, they all mean the same thing. So this new Joshua, this new Jesus, comes. And just like all high priests do, he intercedes for his people before the very presence of God. But the difference between this high priest and the former Joshua is this new Joshua, he actually comes into God's presence completely clean, completely undefiled. There is no stain or blemish he is the spotless Lamb of God who is to take away the sin of the world. And instead, this new Joshua has his robes of righteousness removed. And he is clothed in our excrement. He is clothed in our uncleanness. He is clothed with our defilement, our spit, our scorn, our rebellion, our sin. And the Father doesn't take the punishment away from this Joshua. The Father, to this new Joshua, places the full weight of the punishment in keeping with the totality of our uncleanness that is now being placed on this Joshua. 
on the cross. The sins of the world, the uncleanness of the world is being transferred to Jesus so that those who receive him and believe in his name, they get Jesus' cleansing. They get the white robes. But it's not because of living in denial. It's not because of what they've done, straightening themselves out. It's all because of grace. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, Jesus, on the cross, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a great exchange. He gets our uncleanness. His cleanness gets imputed, gets credited to us. Our dirty, filthy, excrement robes, not just on the outside but on the inside, get taken away and dealt with. He cleanses us. See, that's why Jesus, and only Jesus, can offer a real solution to the problem of uncleanness. Be very wary when you hear people say things like, all religions basically teach the same thing. No other worldview or philosophy teaches this at all. Only Christianity says, God did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. All irreligion can do irreligion is just deny that the outside of the cup isn't that dirty or come to peace with it and say I'm fine with it please don't go to hell out of stubborn denial Um, all religion can do is clean the outside of the cup that's all our good works can do no matter how noble All religion can do is clean the outside of the cup. Please do not go to hell with clean hands. Only Jesus and his blood has the power to save and to cleanse you and then to empower you by his spirit to live out of that cleansing as a new creation creature for him and for his glory. Let's pray. God, as we prepare ourselves for this time of communion, as we sing the song that speaks to the power of your blood, may it resonate in our hearts and imaginations in a new way. Thank you for doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And as we worship you and prepare our hearts, come before you in confession, repentance, even during this song, God. Would a new awareness of your total cleansing through your blood um, wash over us and help us to see that we are free in you. We are cleansed. We are no longer defiled. You have made us whole and you're inviting us to live out of that cleansing and out of that wholeness for you. Amen.